welcome to the Modern Meinhof Podcast, the only podcast devoted to, yet unaffiliated with, the Modern Meinhof Group. I am your host, Richard Huffman, expert in all things Bader Meinhof. We periodically explore the minutia of the Bader Meinhof group, left-wing German terrorists in the 1970s, and other related ephemera. Um, today, I'm presenting an interview I did with uh, author Ron Jacobs, which I conducted sometime in, I think it was early summer of 2009. Um, Ron Jacobs is an author who has written extensively about the Weather Underground, which is often considered like the American equivalent of the Bader-Meinhof group. And he also um, just happens to be a witness to the 1972 Frankfurt bombing that killed Lieutenant Colonel Paul Bloomquist um, in May of 72. And in many ways, that was the very first... He was clearly the very first American victim of left-wing German terrorist bombing. And it's a really, really interesting interview, and I hope you enjoy it. We are talking with Ron Jacobs, who is um, an author. He he has written about the Weather Underground. He is also, um, along with a previous person who I interviewed, um, was a, was living in Frankfurt at the time of the 1972 um, bombing by the Bader Meinhof group. So thank you so much for letting me talk with you, Ron. So why don't you tell me a little bit about um, about uh, your experiences in Germany when you were uh, growing up? Um, I went to. I started there in 1970, right before Kent State. I was going to Frankfurt Junior High School, and uh, what I recall mostly was there is a lot of. You know, it was a typical military base, but there was a lot of things going on because of the because of the war. Uh, there was always demonstrations by the German students. Um, there was stuff going on among like racial things going on with the um, African American GIs at the time, mostly against the uh, mostly against the uh, military. But sometimes it would go between white white and African American GIs. Um, there was a lot of uh, in Frankfurt. There was a lot of. Um, anti-war activity even among the GIs and among a lot of the dependents at the high school and some at the junior high. Um, then when I met, moved over to high school, I went to the high school there from 1970 through 73. Um, are you there? I am. Yeah. I, when I went to high school there, um, there was a lot of, what I remember a lot, I remember the rock concerts. There's a lot of rock concerts, rock festivals. Um, I remember specifically around the um, Bader-Meinhof stuff was if you knew about them, they were in the news and everything because of what they were pulling off of, like bank robberies and stuff like that. But you never, it wasn't until the bombing of the uh, officers club that people really were aware on the American military, among the American military um, and their dependents, that these people, how serious they were. Um, yeah, and other than that, uh, what were you doing the, the do, what were you doing the day of the bombing? Do you remember? Yeah, I remember quite well. I had gone home on the early bus. Usually, I stuck around and stayed until like eight or, eight or nine o'clock in town because my family we lived in a suburb because uh, we, I, I come from a large family and military housing didn't have have any units big enough for us. But they did have this place out out in a, in a town called Rudelheim, which was on its way to Herxt, which yep. is another suburb of uh, Frankfurt. And uh, I had just gotten home, and I was listening to um, AFN, listening to AFN radio, and uh, they uh, they announced they broke into whatever program they were t- they were doing. I believe it was some music program, Top Forty or something. And they broke in and uh, announced said that the officers club had been bombed in the IG Farber building. Then, within probably about a half hour, forty five minutes, uh, my father came home with. A couple of my brothers and sisters who have been playing little league baseball or girls softball, um, so with at a baseball field that was probably about I don't know it might have been maybe at the most a mile from the um, officers club. It was the Blattenstrasse housing area, mm-hmm. and uh, they were all pretty freaked out because all I guess all the games had been called instantly and um, military police had shown up and everything. The next day we went to school, and uh, the biggest difference I remember was that. Before we could get into the high school, the 
area where the high school and a lot of the officers had housing was and so on, they had put, um, they had military police and German police, and they boarded the bus and investigated each of our knapsacks or book bags, and then they used those long-handled mirrors to look underneath the bus to see if there was any explosives attached. So it was instant. The next day, that's when they started instituting all of those uh, precautions. All the security measures, yes. Yeah, yeah. at least on the military base. And in downtown Germany, I used to ride the streetcar home a lot um, and then hang out downtown. And downtown, downtown Frankfurt, there was a little stepped-up police presence, but it wasn't really noticeable until there started being some anti-war demonstrations um, in, in a week or two following, following the uh, bombing. Because I don't know if you remember, but one of the reasons for the bombing, according to the Red Army people, was uh, that because the United States had begun bombing Hanoi and mining the the harbors in Haiphong in northern Vietnam. And so there was a bunch of demonstrations against that in the days following. And one of the things I'm, of course, really interested in is the... um, in many ways superficial, in many ways very direct parallels between the sort of trajectory of the Red Army Faction Bottom Meinhof Group and the Weather Underground in the United States, and you are most definitely an expert in the Weather Underground. Have you noticed um, many of these uh, parallels, and what are your thoughts on that? There are a lot of parallels, um, but there are a lot of differences. It's kind of interesting. Sometimes I wonder when I when I examine them and so on, and when I think about them or when I talk, talk with other people about I wonder if it's... Um, if it's just coincidence or, or, or if there's something more. And I, the best I can figure out, because as far as I know, they never talked to each other directly. Uh, yeah. It was basically, basically coincidence um, or historical synchronicity, you know, because they were responding to a lot of the same things. Um, it's, that you mentioned that um, not too long after the officers' club bombing and while that whole bombing campaign was going on by the Red Army faction where they, you know, where they got the officers' club and then they got up, they bombed us. Against the uh, conditions that they were being held 
It's true, but the 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 one you know the one thing about their popular support was that it was you know the the Bader Meinhof group was very um, influenced by what they read about themselves in the media, and they were very cognizant and aware. And there was a very specific survey done in uh, Germany in 1971 where they asked. Germans across the spectrum, what they thought of the Bader Meinhof group, would they support, do they have sympathy for them, and also would they let them, would they let somebody from the Bader Meinhof group spend the night at their house if asked? And it was stunning because amongst young people, you know, in their 20s and stuff, especially in northern Germany, somewhere between 10 and 20 percent said, yeah, I'd, I'd let somebody, I'd let one of them spend the night in in my house. And um, but it's important to note at the time they weren't they were just robbing banks they hadn't really killed people and they were the manifestation of what people assumed needed to happen which was this vanguard group you know leading the revolution so it was easier to support them and the Bader Meinhof group took a lot of comfort in this they thought you know we have millions of people supporting them but the minute the bombings happened in May of seventy two that almost totally evaporated, and later, it what support was there built back up in this generalized support, more of an, of, a, of an opposition to how the government was treating them, but not necessarily a support for their actions. But I'm not convinced Bader ever really, himself personally, ever really realized that maybe there wasn't as much support. He really believed there was a really strong... Um, uh, support network for them that I actually don't think really existed or was very superficial um, in in the beginning. So later on, when we talk about their support, there was certainly a lot of people incredibly, you know, supportive, but they weren't necessarily supportive of the actions of the the hijackings and other stuff like that. I see what you're saying. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it's interesting with the Weather Underground is they kind of had a reverse trajectory. When they first came onto the scene in 1969, a lot of the left really did not like them at all because of their arrogance and their holier-than-thou attitude and the idea that they were the vanguard unless you follow them. And, you know, you, you weren't a revolutionary, you were paying all this kind of stuff. And then as they kind of pulled back from that, that um, rhetoric and, and, and their, I mean, they would literally go into meetings of other leftists and, and attack them. You know, and they yeah. start fights with them and so on. Um, and then when they went underground, um, they actually, I think, and, and tried to, you know, when they freed Timothy Leary and so on, they actually gained a, a decent amount of respect and, you know, support sort of, kind of, you know, but, like, support more for the idea of them than, than support for any and anything that they, they might actually have been doing. You know, I mean, as, as you're probably aware, there was a lot of... Uh, um, bombings of ROTC um, centers and all sorts of, you know, things. Um, in the, like 1970 to 72 in the United States, the Scanlon's Monthly did a, did a map one time. If you go online, you can find it. And it shows the, the huge numbers of bombings. And most of them were obviously were not done by the uh, Weather Underground. But at the same time, when, when one thinks about the whole entire size of the, of the anti-war movement, even the people who supported them were relatively small within, within the context of the, the, you know, the millions of people who were against the war. Well, I was really struck by that same trajectory, how, and it, I mean, it seems like the, the, um, the, the townhouse explosion where three of the members got killed, blowing themselves up effectively. Prior to this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, they were, they were planning a, a horrible action, a, a, basically a mass murder of a, of a, of a, of a dance at Fort Dix. And, yeah, I'm, I'm, and this caused them some self-reflection to pull back and say, "We don't want to be do this. We we want to be more specific, and we want to attack people or attack uh, you know places, not people." And this is kind of the exact opposite of what happened with the Red Army faction, Bader Meinhof group. They escalated. They got more and more uh, intense and less and less um, willing to think people are anything less than just another part of their war. And I, and I was struck by, I, you know, I, I'm not sure if you were, you were talking earlier about, well, it was synchronicity or what caused their parallels. And it almost seems like 
there but for the grace of God go I, just a, a certain thing happened to cause them to self-reflect, and something similar did not happen with the Red Army faction. I'm, I'm wondering if something if they had had a similar incident where a bunch of their members were killed, that they might have been self-reflective. I, I just don't know, because the Bottom-Eyeth group went into such a more and more increasingly violent direction and increasingly justifying their violence where innocent, well, theoretically innocent people would get killed. And, and the, the Weather Underground did the exact opposite. It just struck me as, as interesting because they seem to have such similar backgrounds and similar makeup and made similar decisions early on. I just thought it was interesting that they went in totally opposite directions. Yeah, I walked thinking about that earlier this morning, and I was thinking, how would one explain that? I mean, one way I've tried to explain, at least in terms of the, um, uh, was the way the bottom line hope saw the U.S. forces. I mean, they were occupying forces, and I mean, one could make a good argument that that's literally what they were, since that's how they began as after that. You know, it's a matter of interpretation of politics. Um, but the fact, that, but the fact that they basically saw the, like you said, saw the state as enemy, as as the enemy, the United States and the German government as as the enemy, and that basically anybody who got in the way in their war was 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 fair game. Um, the fact that they became so much so murderous um, when 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 the underground went the opposite way. I've I've never you know I've I've wondered about that and I've thought about it I've heard this you know I've read discussions about it and I still can't really figure it out. Um, I mean, if you read the rhetoric of the of the Bader Meinhof group, they you know they they seem pretty clear that you know they they were they felt they were justified you know the end justified the means and you know some of the people like when they kidnapped Schleier and and so on some of those people they truly saw you know because they, they were you know they were related connected to the Nazi state. They, um, and they, uh, you know, they were these huge industrialists and so on. But I wonder how much sometimes the influence of their training with um, the basically what was left of the Palestinian Liberation Organization at the yeah. time that had because because of the nature of I mean at the Palestinian Liberation Organization um, consider themselves to be at war with Israel um, and especially relatively new organization and armed struggle was pretty much accepted accepted means throughout the world at that time I mean things have changed a little bit I think uh, in regards to that and then the fact that the um, weather underground never really they had some connections you know they went to Cuba and they met with the uh, some members of the North Vietnamese delegation and they met with a couple members of the, NL, the NLF in Vietnam and so on but they never you know, they never went and received military training, even though from all, all accounts that I've read, you know, um, basically the so-called military training that the uh, Bader-Meinhof group went through, they were essentially kicked out because they didn't have the discipline. You know, I guess I heard they were, like, smoking hash all the time, and still, or a large number of their members were. But um, they did obviously do enough that they could uh, help pull off some of those those hijackings and so on. That were basically those are essentially military operations to be able to pull them off. Yeah, you're exactly um, right. The training, the the the, the these PL, PL, PLO um, tr- uh, training camps were there. W- there was an element to them that was sort of touristy, where they would invite leftists from across Europe and other places to come, mostly to undergo, you know sort of half-hearted training, and then they, the theory was they'd go back to Europe and talk to their friends and send money. And the Germans showed up, and they were essentially given that kind of training, And they, but they demanded, no, we want real training. We're here to really learn how to be revolutionaries. But they didn't take it seriously. The women were sunbathing nude on the rooftops, which was freaking out the the um, Palestinians. The yeah, 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 yeah. And, and finally, you're exactly right. They kicked them out, and it was very fortuitous because um, they were kicked out essentially in very, very early September, very late August of 1970. And it was maybe a week, maybe two weeks later when um, the King of Jordan just mowed down the entire thing and and created what later became known as Black September, where he destroyed those camps. It's, It's quite clear that they could have all been killed in those camps, had the had the Palestinians not kicked them out, so it's yet another real 
odd little fortuitousness because they were they were so annoying to their Palestinian hosts that they got kicked out and thus saving their lives possibly. Yeah, an interesting comp- comparison, although in a, in a different way, is when Timothy Leary was uh, in exile in Algeria. He annoyed his Algerian hosts. I mean, I don't know. If they, they had a uh, international leftist embassy, essentially. The Algerian government at the time was a revolutionary government, and they granted exile to a few Black Panthers and a few other leftist revolutionaries from from around the world. And Timothy Leary, that's where he ended up, and he was in a Black Panther compound there with the International Panthers, but he really was angering them all because he would do things like he had somehow smuggled like hundreds of hits of LSD in there, and, <laughs> in, in, and, and he went down to the beach and started handing out LSD to the uh, to the Al- Algerians hanging out on the beach. And the Algerian government started putting pressure on the uh, on the uh, Black Panthers to get him out of there. So eventually, that's when he went on his long trip that ended up with him, you know, with that woman who actually turned out to be a DEA agent, and he ended wow. up getting busted um, in Switzerland, I think it was, um, for uh, on drug charges and international fugitive charges. My God. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you about one one of the parallels that I saw was this incredibly strong element of um, of equality and, and women's role within the group. In the Bonner-Meinhof group, I've, I've always thought that one of the things that was so that, that, that was so compelling to young people at the time and so distressing to older folks was to look at these posters of the Bonner-Meinhof group everywhere and see that, wow, it's like 50% women. And they're clearly as equally important. In fact, the name of the group, Bader Meinhof, had a woman's name in there as as an equal to a man's. And and I can only assume that to the more patriarchal elements of society, that would have been shocking because they were clearly practicing what they preached about equality. And and it really reflected itself in the dynamic of the group. And I looked at the uh, I look at the Weather Underground and I see similar extremely strong women uh, in an entirely equal role. And I'm thinking that movements in the past had strong female elements, but it was it must have seemed to the young people um, of the day very exciting to see that this group or these groups had such a strong. Um, element of women, something that I I don't see as much of a parallel in the past with. That's a good point. Also, if you, if you think just specifically to that historical period in the anti-war movement and the new left in both countries, for the longest time it had been primarily men, even then, at the, who were, who the media had elevated, you know, to, to leadership roles, people like Tom Hayden in the United States or Rudy Dutschke in, in, uh, or Danny the Red and so on over yeah. in Europe. And then all of a sudden, you, you know, you get Ulrika Meinhof, uh, Gudrun Enslin, and so on in the uh, in the bottom Meinhof. You have Bernadine Dorn and a few other of the women um, who you're, you're absolutely right had leadership roles and were very very strong. Even though in the United States, Weather Underground got a lot of criticism from within the women's movement because the women, you know, they because they were Marxist before they were women. I, I mean before. They were feminists, I guess, and they saw some of the feminist movement as being um, not revolutionary, but just a way for them, for women to hmm. to uh, get some, you know, get their get the same privileges that men had, you know. But that was all like in, internal type of a uh, debate among the left. I think in, in, in Germany, the women's the f- feminist movement took a little longer to take hold. I mean, it yeah. seems to me like it got stronger, like more in the late 70s, early 80s. I mean, I remember, I was living back in the States by then, but I remember keeping up with the news and reading in different different um, papers that people would send me about the movement to get rid of the abortion law, and uh, that, which was a really strong women's, that, that really brought the women's movement to the forefront and so on. Um, and then when they had started having those groups, uh, what were they, the, the, Red, the Rota Sela or whatever? They, yeah, well, there was, the, there was the Revolutionary Cells, and then they had kind of a a women's wing called Rot Zora, Red Zora. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah, the Red Zora. Yeah, and, and they were kind of like, and there was that kind of happened within the um, ultra left in the United States too, with some of the women who were still leftists um, but wanted to separate from the men. They started forming little little groupings like that. Like there was a women's grouping in the uh, Weather Underground that was based out of Boston, and it was all women. You know, they didn't. They, they, both gay and straight women, but it was all women and only women in, 
in the actions that they did. They, they would do some stuff against the war, but they also did things about the, the justice system and um, the health, education, and welfare system at the time, and it's, you know, the way it their perception of how it oppressed women and so on. So um, talk about how the Weather Underground influenced kind of the general thought and direction of the new left, if there was a relationship and how they may have influenced it in both sort of, I mean, if the new left, what, what their relationship was with the thinking of the Weather Underground, whether they were at all influenced or whether they um, were purposely op- opposed to what was going on with the Weather Underground. I think both things were going on at the same time, and I... I think in terms of uh, a lot of the people, the young people and a lot of the people who were not in leadership positions but who were just, you know, went to the demonstrations, engaged in the countercultural activities, uh, went to meetings, planned meetings, uh, and, you know, fought with the police at anti-war demonstrations and so on. The Weather Underground were kind of a uh, inspiration, guiding light kind of thing, even if they didn't, their, their politics were unclear, or even if people didn't agree with all of their politics, they... They, they were inspired by their commitment. They were inspired by their uh, willingness to uh, basically risk their lives to, uh, you know, to, to oppose the war and oppose racism and so on and try to bring revolution. Uh, at the same time, people who were more political, like other left groups, other Marxists and Maoists and Marxist-Leninist groups, had strong, strong um, disagreements with the, with the Weather Underground, especially when it came around their politics and around their acts because... They saw them as uh, dividing the left and ultimately destroying the left. Um, and, of course, who knows whether that was the case or not. That's, that's totally a matter of perspective. I, I know when I was going to, uh, I went to, when I came back from Germany, I went to a college up in New York City for a year. I went to Fordham University, and I worked, hung out with, kind of joined this group called the Attica Brigades, which became the Revolutionary Student Brigades. Mm-hmm. And they were they were part of the Revolutionary Union, which was another group that had when Weathermen when SDS split up and Weathermen came out of that, the Progressive Labor Weathermen Progressive Labor SDS came out of that, and Revolutionary Youth Movement came out of that. The Revolutionary Union were part, were the result of a further split in the Revolutionary Youth Movement. But anyhow, they had major debates with the uh, with the Weather Underground, and I mean sometimes they were you know very very angry debates, and most of them were over political just differences in in politics that really didn't matter to the majority of the people who were going to the anti-war movements. I mean, anti-war demonstrations and other demonstrations, they just mattered a lot to people who where politics was their entire life, like it was with the Weather Underground or uh, some of those groups. I think overall, the Weather Underground did influence the, the anti-war movement and the New Left uh, in both positive and negative ways. They showed people what it meant to be committed. They showed people that there was how to, quote-unquote, live the revolution. Um, and in negative ways, they, the way they burst onto the scene, um, they, they, pushed, they pushed the envelope so far that they alienated a lot of people that they probably, if they had come about it differently without the personal and political arrogance, they might have been able to at least get them to be allies. And then when they decided to um, start bombing places and so on, that I think they thought there was going to be a revolution, like a lot of people did, even though there was there, the United States was not ever, even close to such a such such a thing happening, you know. And I think they might have created a situation where it made it easier for the um, right wing to to create, you know, to engineer a backlash against leftist ideas, you know, backlash that we we continue to see, you know. Well, I, I, you know, I was struck by, you know, when I've seen interviews with some of the members of the Weather Underground, when when, in the time leading up to the Days of Rage, they were thinking there was going to be 100,000 people there or something. I've seen interviews where they've said that, and they were shocked that like 150 or however many people showed up to these um, to this event, and um, and and I and, and and I'm trying to figure out were they self deluded? Were they just really optimistic? They seem to recognize at that point when I've seen them interviewed that maybe their support was different. This is something that I never 
seemed to sense with the Bader-Meinhof group. The Bader-Meinhof group seemed very influenced by reading about themselves. And the press, especially the conservative press in Germany, was extremely interested in making them be making them be a much bigger threat to Germany than I think they probably represented. And the Bader-Meinhof group ate into that. So I look at the, the, the Weather Underground as, you know, maybe a little bit self-deluded, but much more realistic in what their, what their position was in society compared to the Bader-Meinhof group, which seemed to have this symbiotic relationship with the conservative press where they were, it, it, it benefited both of them to believe that the Bader-Meinhof group represented the greatest threat to Germany since the Nazis. And I don't think they necessarily were. They, they were a threat, but I don't think that their, in retrospect, their threat was as big of a challenge as, as, um, as they both made it out to be. But I, I just see a stronger element of self, I guess, delusion. Um, so maybe that's the way you could refer to it amongst the Bader-Meinhof group than the Weather Underground. But, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know the Weather Underground as well as I know the Bader-Meinhof group. I think perhaps the fact that they had, that they had come out of so many, most of their leadership um, of the Weather Underground had been involved in, um, been involved in you know, anti-racist and anti-war movements since the early 60s, and they had seen it go through so many different um Changes and seen it grown and seen it become more radical on some in some ways and, and less and more mainstream in other ways. That plus just the whole nature of the the movement was to be very self-reflective. Uh, uh, I think that's part of it. I think another part of it too is um, the nature of the German state at the time, which was. Uh, I, I always thought that they, you know, even when I was like like a high school kid, just seeing those posters everywhere, and then I can remember going to a rock concert. Um, during that period, um, and there at, at down, downtown Frankfurt at the Congress Hall, and I just remember there being um, Frankfurt Messer, and I just remember there being cops everywhere with dogs and with you know, and they had their little submachine gun stations. And I remember going to a couple demonstrations or walking by demonstrations, and the police presence just in that way was so exaggerated. I thought, and then like when you add into that the the paranoia present in the uh, in, in newspapers like Das Bild and so on, and then the paranoia that that flamed among among German citizens. I, part of it, I always thought. I mean, is, is, I'm, I'm agreeing with what you're saying is that they that they played into the bottom line of um, game that it was so much of it was just a media show. Uh, they were kind of like if, if the Yippies had been um, a little bit larger and been 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 you know assassins, maybe maybe that's how the U.S. would have played would have played the Yippies. I think the fact that the Weather Underground was able to, well, they went underground really quick, and I don't think, and, and their actions were spectacular, but the, the fact that the United States is such a bigger country, they weren't as spectacular, um, even to those who, you know, the, the paranoid conservatives or whatever, as the, um, as the Bader-Meinhof stuff appeared to, appeared to the Germans, given the different, you know, different sizes and so on of, of, of the two countries you know i look at i i I, i've you know being kind of being a leftist myself or a left left leaning person um Mm -hmm. i i often observe um stuff going on in america and try to think well what's the possibility or likelihood of any of this kind of stuff happening again and um not necessarily the, the way the trajectory happened but is there you know, is there a possibility of this stuff kind of happen again? And of course, during the Bush era or Bush regime, as I and most people, a lot of people like to call yeah. it, um, I tend uh-huh. to think um, I, I, many times when I would like in Seattle, we had like a single big giant demonstration leading up to the war. And at the time, I remember thinking, and of course, you know, when the WTO riots happened here in Seattle, <laughs> I remember thinking, boy, we're just we're so close. Something like that could happen. Again, easily, either a martyr could happen and a movement can start. And, of course, in retrospect, we know nothing happened. And, in fact, a, 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 a pretty peaceful um, correction has taken place on a grand public scale with the, the tides turning of public sympathy and the election of Obama and other stuff. But at the time, I just I, I had totally convinced myself that 
another era. I don't know how it would play out, but I had pretty much convinced myself another era might possibly take place, yet it didn't happen. What are, what are your thoughts on the possibility ever again of something similar to the Weather Underground or perhaps the Bader-Meinhof group taking root in, in, in America or possibly Europe? Well, first and first off, I would hope that people learn from their mistakes and didn't do it. But, you know, um, it's there, you, as you, I'm sure you know, you live out in the Northwest, so you probably read about this more than we do out here in, in, the, in the South. Um, the, the, the closest thing that comes to that are those, those Earth Liberation Front people, and they don't really have an organization. They seem to be individuals who take that moniker for their actions, and they, and they seem, most of them seem to be pretty focused just on the animal rights thing, and they don't really make connections to, um, to the, to the nature of capitalism and, and the role capitalism plays or anything like that. Plus, it's kind of hard to get a, a revolution around the rights of animals in a, in a human society. Um, but I, I, last weekend I was at a uh, conference in Chicago. I, I gave a little talk. They invited me on. It was the International Socialist Organization, which is a small, you know, they're probably like about 2,000 members or something like that mm-hmm. throughout the United States. And uh, they... They, they talked about this, you know. The talk, they talk about revolution every time, and they they're they're very reasonable people, and they understand that the the likelihood is minimal. But at the same time, you know, they they look at the their frustration is the fact that so many people were going to anti-war demonstrations when Bush was in power, but the war still goes on, and nobody goes to, and you know, there's not even an anti-war demonstration being called, despite the fact that you know. There's still, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars being sent there, and troops are still being sent to both places, especially Afghanistan. So their frustration is, how do you take the hope for positive change that um, that the election of Obama represented, and how do you turn that into a uh, into a situation where maybe people might start thinking in terms of at least uh, some kind of democratic socialist future, right? you know, even through elections or something like that. And it's obvious it's not really going to be done through the Democrats or the Republicans since they both support the, the system that exists. But um, and, and when I was sitting there listening to these different talks and conversations and so on, I kind of started, I, I thought about the same thing. And I, I, the only thing I could see that happening is if the movement that, kind of exists below the surface and the desire for change that kind of exists below the surface is able to be mobilized to actually start pushing for some of these things that people think they elected Obama for, like to end the wars, to put people back to work, to get, you know, like real health, real affordable health care for everybody. You know, you know the list of, you know yeah. the list of things that everybody wants. And to, um, if, if, and if they have, that happens and then they, they do a lot of organizing with the understanding that, um, you know, if it doesn't work this way, we have to move on to something. If, if it doesn't work through the system that exists, then we have to be willing to uh, move to the next step. And then I, I, what I'm saying is I think the only way it would happen is if people really start organizing and got frustrated because things did not change. Um, yeah. Then then that's, that seems to me, at least in the United States, where the Weather Underground came out and groups like them, it came out of a frustration with with the pace of change or the lack of change. I mean, we've got to remember during the... Um, 60s, it was liberals until um, until 68, till well, till January 69 when Nixon took over, and even he was pressured to do a lot of lip stuff that would be considered, you know, that people on the right wing like Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly, like if Obama did them, they would be calling it the socialist revolution had come, you know, and Nixon just had to do it because there was so much pressure from yeah. from the ground up to, to make these changes, you know. So it's kind of. I, I don't see it happening, you know, and like I said, I really would hope that people would learn that that's not a, a very effective way to do anything except bring the police down and give the police the excuse to come down on the whole movement. Um, but uh, that's, the only, that's the only way I could see it. I wish I knew more about what's going on in Germany, but I haven't been there since uh, 77 or 78. Well, I, and, uh, I, w- I was struck by, you know, when, when I was sitting here in Seattle in, I guess, 2003 in the lead up to the war, and I was attending that big demonstration. You know, that same week, same day, in fact, if I remember right, they had a million people in Berlin demonstrating. Right. And the amazing yeah, thing was... I was in New was, York, the same thing, yeah, yeah. But the amazing thing about Berlin was this was a million people demonstrating to basically say thank you to their government and Gerhard Schroeder 
for oh, standing wow. up to America and saying, we don't want to be involved in this war. Right. And that was the exact opposite of what was going on in Germany in 1967 and 68 when they had a million people in various um, protests or, or less um, saying, why is our government supporting this American regime that is having this kind of proxy capitalist Coca-Cola war in, in Vietnam? And I thought, well, there that shows you how things have changed. There was two parallel actions. There was the action of the leftists that went radical and that ended up and 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 Bader Meinhof direction and that ended up being a dead end and there was the action of a bunch of other people that decided we're radical but we're going to become part of the system and we're going to change and it might take 20 30 years but you had people like Otto Schiele and and Gerhard Schroeder and others that ended up becoming part of the power and when the time was right they were able to influence the the um, and Yoshka Fischer, I mean, not not Gerhard Schroeder, but they were able to influence it in a positive way. I mean, it just seemed like such a perfect bookend to show the right way to do it. And to a certain extent, I guess you could argue with Obama, but Obama, of course, is a generation sort of after that whole Red Army faction. He wouldn't even right. remember that. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a interesting. I never, I never even thought of it in that way. That's that's an interesting to think when, especially. Another thing too, I mean, the differences. If even just talking about Obama versus versus the German government, um, I mean, Danny the Red, Danny Daniel Coleman D. I remember he said one time, or maybe it was Rudy Dutschke about the long march to the institution. That's Rudy Dutschke. Was it Dutschke? Yeah. Basically, what you're what, what you're describing is essentially what happened. I mean, I mean, I know Danny Coleman D. He's the uh, minister of cultural affairs or something like that in Frankfurt. And Frankfurt has quite, and Frankfurt was always somewhat of a, you know, it was always like SPD government for the most part. I mean, Hesse was always more of a social, uh, SPD, social democratic state. They voted that way a lot after the war. Um, but what Obama's done is he's, a lot of his appointees, even though he had the opportunity to put people who were more progressive and so on, he seems to have put in a lot of the same people that have been representing and organizing the American state for the last, you know, 20, 30 years or something like that, if you think about it. And that shows, I think, a difference in the responsiveness of the U.S. government to the desires of the people versus the responsiveness of the German government to the desires of the people. And I'm not saying either of them are perfect or either of them are completely bad, but I, from what you described and just thinking about that and, and, and thinking about what I know of like German current events in light of what you just said, um, it seems that the German government is more responsive to the uh, to the to the changes desired by the people than you know, and, and is willing to allow people who used to be well, like Joshua Fisher, you know, who I who I swear I think I was at that same demonstration that that famous picture of him is in, you know, yeah. it's like you know someone like someone like that is now part of you know like what was he the foreign secretary or the something like not, that? Not not anymore, but he was uh, yeah he was the he was the um, yeah, essentially, that's exactly right. It was like sort of the yeah, and that was during the whole lead up to the war and every the war in Iraq and so on. That's and that's he would yeah. And to, to me, that's you know, you would never find. I mean, just look at what the the outrage around Bill Ayers' somewhat minimal connection to uh, to Obama and the Palling outrage that provoked, you know, yeah, provoked provoked on on the right and the you know on almost all versions of the right. And, you know, so it's unlikely you would ever see Bill Ayers serving as, say, Secretary of Education, even though, you know, his writings on education and his knowledge and the people he knows in that, in that regard would probably be very useful in terms of, you know, saving a lot of our youth from total ignorance, you know, yeah. and, and helping, helping revive our schools and so on. But you never see that in this country, so it's an interesting, because I think our country, what I'm seeing is, is our, our government, not our country, but our government is essentially a very conservative, if not ultra, if not just plain old right-wing government, um, because it has to defend the system of Wall Street so strongly. Whereas post-war Germany, well, even pre-war Germany, um, you know, has a legacy of a uh, social democracy and democratic socialism and so on that never has never existed on governmental levels in the United States. I mean, not to say that there haven't been strong, you know, movements for socialism and you know, and all and all that and progressive progressive politics throughout at least the 20th century and, and up to today, but they've never really had had, that, had a kind of presence in government, that, um, in national government, that um, the uh, that existed, has existed in Germany on and off 
for over 100 years. Yeah, I think I think specifically the changes in Germany. I mean, one of the reasons why five years ago it was there was all those relatively really exciting things happening. It's simply because they have a you know this parliamentary system that allows a third party to be able yeah. to come to come to some form of power without necessarily compromising their vision. They're saying, yeah, we're going to be 10% of the population, but we're not going to compromise, but we can participate in a coalition and get a lot of our stuff heard, and that's how well, Yoshi right. Fisher came into being. And we don't have anything parallel. So in America, it tends to muddle towards the middle, and then certain elements never go away. The same people running the Fed are always running the Fed, and that and 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 that's something that wouldn't necessarily or could or could could happen differently in Germany. It's a, it, it's one of the beauties of the American system how horribly conservative and how it never ever changes but it's definitely from a, my perspective a more lefting perspective it's um it's really discouraging because you 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 think wow is there any way this could ever change especially what we've gone through in the last year this titanic way that capitalism and elements of capitalism have so clearly been shown to be incapable of operating effectively Yet the changes even offered by Obama seem so minimal. So, and I get the feeling in Germany it might have happened a little bit different, at least five years ago when there was that red-green coalition. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So. Well, I, I don't want to take any more of your time, but this has been a really fascinating conversation. I, I've always been intrigued by the weather underground and these amazing parallels, yet seeming complete lack of connection. They, they seem to have sprung up totally independently from each other and followed such similar perspectives. I think talking with you, I've uh, begun to understand a lot of those parallels a little bit more, and I really appreciate your time. Sure. Thanks for doing this, and thanks for um, running that, organizing that website. It's a, it's a great resource. Oh, I, I appreciate that. It's been a lot of fun, and, and I, I, I don't know why I'm so hopelessly fascinated by this group, but I just I got so tired of seeing people put out information or, or bad information or just propaganda from both kind of the left and the right to tell the truth. I just wanted something a little more factual and interesting, and that was my hope, and hopefully I've accomplished that. Did you see so, that book um, that recently came out? Um, by It's put out by some anarchist press down in, down in Oakland. I'll send yeah. you the uh, title. I'll, I'll, Actually, have I, I have, and, and I'm hoping to talk with those guys um, pretty soon it's kind of like this omnibus thing that it's ironic i'm i'm somewhat of an expert in this area and my german skills are horrible so yeah, having uh, having uh, a group kind of systematically translate everything is so helpful for me honestly so they're one of the um they're one of the next groups i'm hoping to talk about and another thing you might be cool. interested in as well is yeah. there's a there's honestly a, a really terrific movie that um, that it was actually nominated for an Oscar this year called the Bader Meinhof Complex, and it comes out in the U.S. finally in about a month and a half. And yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Absolutely. It's it's really a honestly it's stunningly great because it doesn't it, it it doesn't take any particular side. It just shows it very well, and you can really see the trajectory of this group and and ultimately what they ended up doing. It's just a fantastic film. It's honestly just fantastic. So there's it's it's weird how forty years later the these groups are somewhat more prominent than ever. And and I think in a certain sense it's interesting because it's not this weird necessarily this weird there is an element of weird nostalgia for radicalism. But often a lot of it is real thought into what's going on and what brought these people to the forefront. And that's been exciting for my site because my site certainly attracts its fair share of people that find these groups really cool and interesting. And I yeah, totally yeah. understand what's dri driving that. But it's also driving a lot of people to really look at what, you know, about what drove these groups and maybe what these groups got wrong and maybe what these groups got right. And I, and I thought, and I find that element um, interesting and, and, um, and somewhat heartening that not everybody's doing it just because it was cool that these radicals were killing people. Right, right. Yeah, there's this guy, um, there's this movie, one more thing. There's this um, book that this friend of mine wrote. Um, it's a novel called The Company You Keep, and it, the author's name is Neil Gordon, and it came mm -hmm. out like, probably like about four or five years ago, and it's about, it's a, fiction, it's one of, it's a fictionalized thing about a weather underground guy who has to, who's like, you know, assumed a new identity, become a lawyer and everything. 
something, but then he has to go back and revisit his radical past and, and some of those people because something having to do with keeping his daughter, keeping custody of his daughter or something. Anyhow, Paul Newman's going to start making a movie out of it this summer. Who is? And so, no, Robert Redford, I mean. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, Paul Newman. Wow. I have to check yeah. that out. That, 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 um, that sounds like in a comical way, or in a, in a serious way, similar to a German movie called um, What to Do in Case of Fire, where a bunch of different leftist radicals lived oh, wow. in this lived in a place and then and then their their back their 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 um their uh their their background came back to not haunt them but they had to revisit it after they had kind of moved on in life and um yeah and and I and I, I find that you know very very interesting. I also one of my favorite movies of all time was that Sidney Lamette movie um Running on Empty which seemed to be the story yeah. of Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers sort of yeah. where they had to yeah, that was uh, pretty good yeah and, and I just thought that was a movie. Before I knew any of this stuff, I remember being very moved by that movie and the struggles, just just what goes on with these people as they have to come to grips with their past lives and stuff. I find that very interesting. The difference with the Germans and the Americans is that the Americans, they went underground, and then they kind of came out of underground. And the Germans, for the most part, continued their fight and were captured and went to prison. And I was struck by the fact that a lot of the 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 um, weather underground because the American the FBI so completely did so many illegal things. Uh, for the most part, the the the, the weather underground people in effect got away with what they did because they weren't mm-hmm. able to be prosecuted. Well, that definitely didn't happen in the German state. The German pe- police did a lot of horribly illegal things, but it had, didn't didn't stop their prosecutions whatsoever. So. Right, yeah, and they, they basically changed the laws to make sure they could put, throw the, keep those people in jail forever. Yeah. But, and I, but ironically, of course, because it's Germany, there's no such thing as forever, and the few, there is a few, there's like one single Bader-Meinhof prisoner left in prison, I think, right now. But for the most part, they got out within eight, nine, ten years. The rare cases, a couple were in for 20 years, and they've been released recently. The, in fact, the, the leader right. of the second generation... Um, uh, Christian Klar, um, he just got released uh, about a year ago or six months ago. So there is no such thing as being in prison forever in Germany, whereas in America you can be in prison for your third strike of stealing a candy bar forever. So yeah, right, one other right. difference between them and us, which I tend to I tend to support the German side better because when these guys got released, they clearly represented zero threat to society and. I think they realized time to move on, but we're we're not capable of doing that in America for whatever reason. So agreed. Yeah. yeah. Well, Ron, I really appreciate your time, um, and uh, and please keep in touch via email if you learn anything new or hear anything else that you might find fascinating for my readers on my site. Okay, great. Cool. All Thanks right. so much. Mm-hmm.